Hello, welcome to the lanky word on the word on the hill. <laughs> oh, you started so strong and then you, just, you lost confidence in your in your humor. I did. I lost right. confidence because I uh, don't know why I did. I That's just all right. it wasn't that funny. No, I'm just, yeah. but you, know, you, you are. You know what happened is that I was oh. thinking to myself, I was like, dude, it's Palm Sunday. Not yet, but it will be. I know it will be. And so we're like doing a podcast on Palm Sunday, and I'm like, I can't be funny. I mean, you, you can't. <laughs> you, you know, now, what how I'm do saying. I respond to that with humor now? Now you put me in a terrible position. I know. This you is didn't... this is the problem oh. with trying to do things like this, you know? Well, humorlessly, this is the Word on the Hill podcast with the Lanky Guys. My name is Scott Powell. And my name is Father Peter Mossad. And we I... sound like an NPR show. Welcome to NPR. My name is That's NPR. way too much inflection. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my well, goodness Well, as you guys have figured it out by now that we are uh... not Catholic stuff you should know. <laughs> not Catholic stuff you should know. <laughs> this is not Matt Fred. We're none of those things. All right, our Palm Palm Sunday readings. We begin with the gospel, of course, with the procession into the church. You want to do the like old timey radio voice? I can hear it in you. We begin with the oh, we begin with the first gospel. We begin with yeah. It's always sort of in the background. It's just there. It's just who I am. It's kind of love who I am. It's kind of like Irish. Do you know that whenever I say in mass, I say the Lord. I I like I can't not say the Lord. It's spelled L A R D when you say Lord. (laughs) The Lord be with you. It's like how you say chimney. Chimney, chim chim chiru, bro. Yeah. All right. So our procession, our reading for the procession with psalm palm. (laughs) Oh my goodness (laughs) gracious! Our reading for the procession with palms at the beginning of mass. Oh, hold on. Before we even do that. Oh my gosh. Everybody, thank you for tuning in to our Lanky Guys Live and donating. What uh, are we even thinking? I don't know. It was. Uh, we are so grateful for all of you who came and listened to us and watched the podcast and supported us and gave us your financial assistance and your prayers. Um, we um, had a very successful year. $13,000 for the ministry here at St. Thomas yeah. Aquinas, which we are so thrilled about, which is going to allow us to... Buy a teleprompter? <laughs> <laughs> Half of a teleprompter. Half they're, a teleprompter. They're pretty expensive. Day, yeah. They're a little pricey. We'll do a, another fundraising Drive, thing. But we thank you guys so much. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. It was awesome. Thank you, Father Peter. Thank you, Scott. Oh, you bet. And uh, thanks, Gage Shirley, Gage. who who um, was our teleprompter man, and is as also also reaching out to a lot of you who gave to thank you. And um, so you got like so if you get a call from a guy with a very strange name, surely that's got to be him. Surely it's him. <laughs> uh, his name is Gage Shirley. Uh, and so, yeah. Well. On that happy note, let's talk about Palm Sunday. So our first reading, the reading that we have before everything else, or the, the, pr- the before the procession of palms with palms. I might edit the rest out. So okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say it again. The procession with palms at the beginning is coming from Luke chapter nineteen, verses twenty-eight through forty. This is the moment that Jesus arrives in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, which yep. is appropriate that we read it at the beginning of Palm Sunday. Absolutely, that's my commentary. Okay, man. Um, do you know? Sometimes when I think about Palm Sunday, I think about basketball players holding a basketball with in one their hand, palms, palming things on Sunday. Yeah, every Sunday is Palm Sunday for a for the Globetrotters. Glo- I was gonna say the Harlem Globetrotters. <laughs> it's like we are in each other's minds. 
Okay. Oh, this is, I feel so alive. <laughs> <laughs> At the Mass, we have the first reading of Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 to 7. Just a shorty today. Our responsorial psalm is coming from Psalm 22, which is what Jesus says on the cross, right toward the end of his, his earthly life. Mm. Psalm 22, verses 8 through 9, 17 through 18, 19 through 20, and then 23 through 24, which... This is exciting because a lot of us have heard these words out of Jesus's mouth. We, we hear it every Sunday, every Palm Sunday. But I like that this psalm, the fact that we're doing it as a responsorial psalm, which I don't remember us doing it. We probably did. But I don't remember this always showing up every Palm Sunday. But I like it because it puts Jesus's words in some context, yep. which it needs. Yep. I keep giving commentary on everything. Sorry. That's for later. <laughs> I think you're just excited to teach about all I'm this stuff. I'm excited about Palm Sunday. Okay. And then our second reading is St. Paul to the yep. Filipinos. Oh. No, you can't say stuff. Like no, that. They, they, come on, that's the best. I, w- I always wonder if 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 I was a Filipino, I would always kind of be a little bit excited about Saint Paul to the Philippians because it's very close. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> so I have it's nothing a, to add. Yeah, I have no commentary. It's on a, that. it's a, the uh, Philippians chapter two six through eleven six through eleven the canonic hymn. Which I is like the best. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little. You can't, you can't hold yourself back oh, hard, is what man. I'm realizing. And our gospel is a beast this year. <laughs> your C is always, I think, the longest one we get. Yeah, dude, I could is... be wrong on that. Your A, might, your B with Mark is obviously shortest. But yeah. this, is a, this is a big one. This is Luke's. Uh, so your feet are going to get sore. And if you are holding small children, they're going to get tired. Yep. And so, but just, so, but just be aware. Because I'm always kind of surprised. I'm like, oh, right. It's this one. So now you know. Just be ready. You'll be fine. Wear some shoals, you know, foot things on your shoes. <laughs> it's a full two chapters. I mean, it's, it's a solid Luke 22, 14 to twenty three fifty six. I mean, you totally stole that from me. But that's okay. I was talking I stole? too much. I was supposed to read it. You were supposed to read that? Yeah, that's all right, though. Oh, you were supposed to read it. I didn't even think. I was I giving too much the... commentary. That's what I do. Yeah, I just, yeah. I'm, I'm spilling yeah. all my words out. You're just using all your words. Okay, let's <gasps> let's start at the principal. Yes. So let's 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 first um just just uh call just, just, out just the cuss, cuss, cuss. <laughs> what are we calling let's on? just call out the problem with doing a podcast on a day like like such as this this reading is well we have the gospel i'm sorry we have the first the, the pre-first reading right the pre-game show the the coming into jerusalem reading but then the gospel like you said so long it's hard to know how to do a podcast explaining a reading that is so tremendously long without having a two-hour podcast. So yeah, I mean, it, we're it, gonna give. I just have a couple nuggets I want to put because mm-hmm. this is also a, it's also kind of easier in a certain sense because we all know the narrative, we know this story, we stand for it every Palm Sunday, but it's probably the most familiar part of the gospel. Right. So we have a little bit of freedom. We don't have to unpack everything, but I want to highlight just a couple of things that have shown up in my own reading and study and prayer life lately. Perfect. So that's, that's my caveat for all this. My disclaimer. Your disclaimer. Disclaimer. Yeah. But the coming into Jerusalem. Um, I, uh, so many things we could say. Yeah. I, uh, I always love, uh, it's actually somebody brought up Tom Smith today. They had a chance to meet him at yeah, a retreat. Yeah, Marina saw him in uh, Salt Lake or something. Salt Lake in Utah and something. She did a retreat out there. Tom Smith, man. I just love Such you, Tom. I, I wonder if Tom listens to us. He did at one point. He may have gotten sick of us by now. Which <laughs> yeah. would have, I, no one would fault him for it. No one would fault him for that. But at some point he did. Especially in the Basilis. So. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are all oh, the best. Lord we, help us all. We just love you. So, um, all right. So, so the, the uh, triumphant procession to Jerusalem. I mean, it's like... Triumph- it's this really beautiful thing of we have the Colts and <laughs> the, the, playing the Bengals. Yeah, <laughs> the Colts. <laughs> but 
<laughs> the Indianapolis Colts. Untie them. Unfetter the Colts. Untethered. Dude, oh my goodness! If I if I was a cult fan, that's what I would I would say is untether the Colts. Maybe that's what I'll call this this episode. <laughs> untether the untether Colts. The Colts. Uh, one thing, just I say because it's going to come up later on, and the, this is where context is actually really helpful here. It, there's a relation to something in the first reading. So, um, from Luke chapter nine, verse fifty one. All the way to right here, you have this long chunk of gospel that's called the travel discourse mm. or the travel narrative. So starting in chapter 9, verse 21, th- th- really the, the procession to Jerusalem in a lot of ways began way back at the end of chapter 9. And at the end of chapter 9, you have this, this moment where Luke tells you that Jesus set his face to go toward Jerusalem. Mm. And he'll take, what is this, like 10 chapters to do it because he makes a lot of stops and he heals a lot of people, does a lot of things. But uh, Luke tells you that right kind of in the midst of all of this opposition that's coming toward Jesus and people don't like what he's doing and he's, he's uh, a little bit threatening to the status quo and the religious leaders and the sort of the, the political and religious expectations of the people at the time. Jesus is challenging those things. Right. And so Luke needs to point out in the midst of that that now he's been up in the Galilee for a long time. He's been ministering and, and doing all these things and healing people and he's been pretty, pretty widely accepted. There's been religious leaders from Jerusalem coming up and trying to badmouth him. But now he's going to kind of head toward the pressure cooker of Jerusalem where the political unrest is reaching fever pitch because everybody's waiting for the Messiah. Everybody's waiting for this figure who the Old Testament prophesied was going to come and set us free from our enemies and from our oppressors and give us the kingdom of David back, which has been lost for so many hundreds of years, and give us our land back and, and make us the people of God that we were always supposed to be. Right. Because now we're not. And Jesus is headed toward that place, which he's going to face a whole lot of opposition. So Luke has to go out of his way to point out he set his face because in the Old Testament to set one's face always means to do something that's going to be profoundly difficult and incredibly hard. So this, in a lot of ways, is just the climax of that journey. Mm. He's finally arrived um, and so as he arrives, he proceeded on his journey up to Jerusalem. And it says he drew near the Beth- Bethphage and Bethany and to the place called the Mount of Olives. Um, I just want to say a word about the Mount of Olives really quick because I don't think it's something we've brought up in the podcast before. There's a whole lot of expectation in the Jewish world about the Mount of Olives, even to this day. You've been to the Holy Land before, right? You've been to Jerusalem. Oh, big time. Yeah. So if you if you look at the Mount of Olives, one of the things that's most pro- – it's a big mount. There's a lot of houses. And right. And it's across the Kidron Valley right from the Temple the Mount. Yep. But what you see, do you remember what you see predominantly on the face of the Mount of Olives that faces the Kidron Valley over to the Temple Mount? Cemetery. Cemetery, yeah, tombs. Well, this, do you know is, why? It's tombs on both sides. Yeah, they're so, everywhere. On, on, on either side, but it's at the bottom of but, the hill. But you want to the... be facing Jerusalem if you get a tomb. Right. They're not cheap. Do you know why they're all there? No. Because the understanding is, and this was understanding kind of prior to Jesus as well, but it developed as time went on. You remember... Um, well, I'll just say this. The expectation is that when the Messiah, for, for Orthodox Jews today, still to this day, the expectation is when the Messiah finally comes, he's going to come from the Mount of Olives. That's the direction we should be waiting, partially because remember there was that scene way back in Ezekiel when before, the fir- before Solomon's temple was destroyed, mm-hmm. they saw the presence of God, the, the glory cloud, leave the temple, go out the east gate and go toward the Mount of Olives. 
So the understanding was when God abandoned us, when we were left sort of on our own because of our sin and all these things, he went off to the Mount of Olives. And so we'll look in that direction for him to return. And so Orthodox Jews nowadays will want their bodies buried on the Mount of Olives because when the Messiah comes, there's a there's a belief now that was undeveloped in the time of Jesus. It has developed since okay. that the resurrection of the dead is going to happen, that you want to be where the Messiah is going to come, because then you will be among the first to come back from the grave and accompany the Messiah in glory back to Jerusalem. What's interesting, too, so it's it, an important mountain. Yeah, yeah, it's an important mountain. There's still an expression of that with actually within the church itself. Absolutely, there is. Because um, uh, uh, we will if we will face uh the the um caskets to the east towards yes. even a liturgical east and bury so that when the lord comes we can just sit up straight that <laughs> oh there we are yeah, it's like no, oh that's, he's that's here true, but even more in the christian tradition also to the mount of olives why do you remember why the mount of olives is so significant in christian eschatology as far as we look for the return of the messiah the jewish orthodox jews are looking for him to come the first time okay we're looking for him to come back but why are we looking toward the Mount of Olives for that? I don't know. Do you remember what happened at the Mount of Olives at the end of Jesus' life? He got arrested? No, that's where he shot like a rocket into heaven. Oh, that's the, where he the, ascended. Oh, that's where he ascended is from the Mount of Olives. Yeah, I, so I, the Mount I, of I Olives, didn't put that together. Yeah, no, and, it, it's, and I wasn't trying to trick you, but it's, it's a pr- really profoundly important location. Right. So Luke is not, it's not haphazard. It's not an aside that he says he's going to the Mount of Olives because it's entrance into Jerusalem as Messiah has got to come from the Mount of Olives. He has to come from... It's it's the most logical direction for him to come. Absolutely. But there's a, a deep theological significance. And so before he does, it's that whole scene. He tells the disciples, go over there to probably Bethphage or Bethany and go get a, an animal, these colts, um, go steal a colt from somebody. And they're like, yeah, we'll steal a colt for you, Jesus. And he's like, you know, we need to commandeer your animal because we're doing this thing. And it's this amazing scene. Um, and he goes in, and, and Matthew actually makes it a little bit clearer that as he's processing into Jerusalem, and he's got a lot of people with him. The disciples are there. Um, there's a company of women that are there along with him. But I, it can't be that many people. But on this particular Thursday, no, I'm sorry, Sunday. Any given <laughs> Palm, Sunday? Sunday, any given Sunday. This particular Sunday. Palm Sunday, there's two major things going on. And okay. I think we've talked about this before. The first major thing that's going on is that Jerusalem would at this moment be being flooded with pilgrims from all over the area who are coming for the required pilgrim feast of Passover, which is coming in a couple days. So thousands and thousands of people are flocking into Jerusalem, huge crowds that day. Right. The other thing that's happening simultaneously is what? Do you remember? You always point this out and I always forget it. And you always remind me every year. Now I know that you said it. I'm not going to remember <laughs> it because you it. remember it. Did you stole it from my brain, man? I did. Well, we'll come back to it. Um, but what I want to point out, and again, because our time is limited in dealing with all this stuff, because there's so many details. Right. Matthew makes this clear. And I know, you know, Luke gives us tons, but Matthew gives us one line that Luke doesn't give us. Because as Jesus processes into Jerusalem, he's riding on this animal, which is, which is in and of itself a royal act. Remember way back when... Um, David was dying. King David was on his deathbed. And one of his sons, he had a bunch of really crooked sons who all tried to basically overthrow and get the throne for him themselves. But David knew that, that Solomon was actually the heir to the throne. He was the one who he had promised the throne to. And so as, I think it was Absalom, is trying to basically stage a coup and make this attempt to get the throne, the sign that David gives that Solomon is actually the one that is supposed to be the next king is that Solomon will ride his donkey into Jerusalem. That will be the royal sign that he is the king. 
So the fact that Jesus is riding an animal into Jerusalem, that in and of itself is a royal act. Especially when everybody else is on foot. Because it's a pilgrim fee, so you're supposed to walk. So he sticks out big time among this crowd of thousands and thousands of people, none of whom, or at least most of whom, have no idea who he is. They don't know who this guy is. He's this itinerant preacher. He's been to Jerusalem a couple times. He's ruffled some feathers, but the vast majority of the people, they don't know this guy. And so the fact that somebody has the guts to ride an animal into Jerusalem right on the verge of a major feast that takes a lot of a lot of guts well, to be, do that. because the Pharisees are going to pay attention, the Roman officials are going to pay attention, and what the what Luke gives us is that he the, the the Pharisees are trying to shut him up, saying Absolutely. like, "Hey, rebuke your disciples because they're like having they're having a party." I that I I was kind of struck. I've 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 read that line before, but it hit me differently today. Yeah, because it kind of made me think that there's some Pharisees who they're giving Jesus some credit that. We maybe they haven't totally written him off yet because they're like, if you are significant, maybe you are some sort of a prophet, right. you should know that your disciples are causing this huge ruckus. They're, they're being a circus. Mm-hmm. Surely you see that. Surely we're seeing enough respect in you to recognize that what your, what your disciples are doing is clearly out of line, right? Mm. They seem to have enough respect or trust in Jesus to know that y- you know your disciples are kind of claiming you're Messiah, right? That That's not cool. Right. So you should quiet them down because surely you see that that's a problem. And he's like, I ain't quieting nobody down. He's like, this is this is the thing is that if they don't cry out, the stones will cry out. Right. Which, which is actually a, a, an eschatological prediction. Absolutely it is. Oh, the one thing I wanted to say that Matthew points out that nobody else does is that as these huge crowds are kind of getting riled up, they're like, oh my gosh, somebody's making a run for it. Like somebody's riding an animal into this. Everybody's waiting for a Messiah. Everybody's right. waiting for this political savior. When they, and they're, they're thinking sim- symbolically according to Solomon and saying like, Absolutely. They, they, like they have that in their minds. Absolutely. But Matthew tells us that as everyone is shouting Hosanna to the son of David and waving palm branches, that they're literally like cutting down from trees all around them. They're all saying, who is this guy? Right. There's, he's not a known entity. They're just seeing somebody is actually doing something. Somebody is making a claim for the kingship, and he's riding an animal into Jerusalem. And I bet everyone's like, either this guy is going to do something really big, or he's going to get killed making this attempt. And either way, we want a front row seat for the show. We want to watch. Which is so beautiful. Like I, when I was in the Holy Land with Tom Smith, mm. as you're seeing, you have the King's Gates yeah. right there across from the uh, from the Mount of Olives. You have so so basically you have these like gigantic, beautiful gates that everybody would have been go- going through. Yeah, and then you have the Sheep Gate just right. to the right of it. And so as he's going, like there's a speculation, and Tom Smith introduced me to the speculation. Um, Yep. That 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 um in that moment he actually could have gone through the sheep gate. He could have. I don't buy it though. I know you don't like it. I like the, it. The only reason I don't like it is that everyone, yeah, because immediately. I mean, like, imagine you're seeing in everybody's jazz. I want to be clear that I don't know. We don't know. Uh, I, I don't I, know. I want to be clear about that. I, I know lots no of things. Yeah, you know stuff. Yeah, I mean, I am a visionary. I mean, I, the kidding, kind of not, the beauty but... of it. Yeah, you're not the beauty. Well, you are. <laughs> The beauty of it is that both actually work. Right. Because Jesus is the king. So going in the royal gate is appropriate for him. Jesus also is the sacrificial lamb. 
who has humbled himself. So going in the sheep gate also makes sense. And it's kind of beautiful that both are theologically accurate. Right. Um, but the one, the other thing that kind of is different about this is that the other thing that you always point out to me that's happening on Palm Sunday is that this is the day that all of the lambs are being brought into the city to be prepared and scrutinized by the priests to be sacrificed for the Passover. Right. This is the day they bring them to town. Yep. So as Jesus is processing into the city as king, all of the lambs who are going to be led to the slaughter on Passover are also being led into the city, mm. presumably through the sheep gate, I always thought. That's the other reason I... I that, that it would be... It jumps would... into the procession of, of lambs going in there. I don't, mm. I don't know, which is fully possible. But those two things are significant about this day. Right. All the pilgrims are going to worship, and all the lambs are going to die. All the lambs. All the lambs. are going to die. Yeah, everybody I did there. I did. Yes, it's like, and we have one loaf with us. We do. So brings us to Isaiah. I mean, I think we it have does. to. I think we have no, to keep this procession going. Dude, I'm good. I love the opening reading. I mean, like that moment because Palm Sunday, we have to remember, is an overture for the entirety of of Holy Week. Holy Week. For, for for really, what happens is that for those who are not going to participate in on Holy Thursday and Good Friday, in in a certain yeah. sense, we're we're actually putting all of Holy Thursday and Good Friday into it. At yes, once, absolutely. So, so that, so that, so that you can really participate. Did you call in it an overture? An overture. Yeah, it is an overture. Yeah, yeah an overture. Again. Overture always has for those of you who are not musically astute. I learned it from Bugs Bunny. But the overture, really? overture, something, something. This is it. We'll hit the heights. <laughs> I know what heights will. Hit. Nobody, nothing. No. Nope. Anyway, no. Nope. Uh, an overture has all of the major movements of a particular symphony in it, kind of compacted. Yeah. As an introduction, so you got everything there. But but here's here's what strikes me. There's a lot that strikes me about this. The first line, though, that we get from Isaiah, and I want to back up just for a second. But the first line, it says, "The Lord has given me a well-trained tongue that I might know how to speak to the weary," which is, in a certain sense, an answer to the way that this first reading from Luke actually ends, because the Pharisees are here. Jesus is just, Jesus isn't saying anything. He's just riding on this animal into Jerusalem. But that's a word. Of course, it's a word. It's, but a, I, but it's, a, it's, it's a prophetic word, but not in the same way that we normally consider words because we're so verbose. No, it is a prophetic word. But but what I'm getting at is that when the Pharisees are like, hey, talk to your people, he uh, essentially says, no, I will not. So the word that he speaks oh, is silence oh. in this particular sense. But there, there is a direct segue from that last line uh, of the gospel into this first line of Isaiah. Because Ooh. this line from Isaiah, this this reading, this passage is about the suffering servant. Right. So the, Isaiah has just come basically from. Uh, the, the, actually, I have to read it. It's just two lines, but okay. it, it, we need it in context because uh, this line about the suffering servant seems to kind of come out of nowhere, but but it's significant. Well, so, well, this is yeah, this is oh, you're already there. Good. I, I marked it. <laughs> I know what I'm doing. He studied for these things. That's, that's, that's impressive. But chapter 50, which talks about Israel's disobedience, right, says, it begins by saying, hey, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? To which of my creditors did I sell you because of your sins you were sold? Because of your transgressions, your mother sent you away. When I came, why was there no one? When I called, why was there no one to answer? Was my arm too short to ransom you? Did I lack the strength to rescue you? By a mere rebuke, I dry up the sea. I turn the rivers into a desert. And it kind of goes on. But this is sort of Isaiah, well, it's God through Isaiah speaking to Israel, who is like, why is God totally hosed us over? Why has he abandoned us? Look at Israel to the north. We're about to suffer. We're, we're facing all of this brutalization. And God comes through Isaiah with this weird first line saying, hey, where is your mother's certificate of divorce? 
So in the ancient world, a husband was re- if a, if a if a couple wanted to get divorced, the husband was required to give the certificate to present the certificate of divorce. Mm. Only the husband could actually divorce. do a divorce. It could divorce. And here, actually, it's reversed. It's like, hey, where's your mother's certificate of? In, in other words, I didn't divorce you, Israel. Mm. I am your husband. I am your bridegroom. I did not leave you. I did not divorce you. I didn't sell you off to your creditors. I'm not the, who are my creditors? I'm God. God doesn't have creditors. You think I would sell you into slavery? You think I would divorce you? You yourselves wrote the certificate of divorce. You yourselves sold yourself into slavery because of your sin. Did you think I wasn't big enough to save you? Did you think I wasn't great enough to rescue you? I dry up land before whole nations, like in the Exodus. My arm is strong enough and long enough to reach to bring you out of any trials. But I came and you didn't welcome me. I sent my prophets. I sent my word constantly and you didn't answer. You rejected me constantly, constantly, constantly. And what God is trying to remind his people of in this passage from Isaiah, in which they're suffering pretty deeply, is that if you're suffering, it's not because I left you out alone. It's because you would not let me help you. Mm. You would not let me love you. Instead, you chose to turn your back and reject me. But guess what? I'm coming back. And then we enter into this next servant song, which is where we jump into the reading today. And the servant, now it kind of changes voices. And instead of God talking, now the servant begins to talk. And he says, all right, so what I did was God gave me a well-trained tongue to know uh, the word that sustains the weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He wakens my ear to listen like no one being like one being taught. Basically, the servant, as we've talked about before, the servant of Isaiah is always Israel in its idealized form. So God just basically showed the ways in which Israel not just fell to sin, but rejected her God. Hmm. And now Israel will be embodied in a certain sense in this faithful servant who will come and speak life-giving words, who will turn his back and be beaten and be rejected and scourged and all these things that Isaiah says that the servant is going to do. But we need to kind of read it in juxtaposition to the Israel that rejected God. Mm. Does that make any sense? Yes, it does. It, it, it's interesting because there's there's a there's a couple of things functioning, and it's it's strange when I look and I see this idea of a tongue. I say, what does a tongue do? I don't know. A tongue helps me speak, but it actually mm. helps me digest. It actually helps me to take to myself those things. So it's mm. like the God has given me a well-trained tongue. Normally, we would say, and and this is a little bit of a stretch. Pardon me for it. Um, is that we would say that that tongue, that I might know how to speak. Even, he's even saying that. But a tongue is also about digestion. Okay. So, so he's, and he says, what, what are we going to do? He says, I'm going to hear and I'm going to be able to receive. I'm not going to rebel. I've not turned back. I'm going to give my back to those who beat me. My, I'm going to be able to actually digest all of the sufferings, all mm. of the abuse, all of those things. Which is also requiring some silence. It's also, actually not going to speak in that way. You're right. A word is more powerful than just sounds. Right. It's it's not just mere verbalization. Silence will speak far greater. Absolutely word and silence. It's 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 this it's this I'm going to actually go through and I'm going to take these things to myself. Which is so funny because we live in this world where I'm trying to be on social media a lot less during Lent. I didn't give it up full sale, but I'm trying to be less. But right. I mean, we live in this world in which we constantly are yelling at each other and screaming and accusing and throwing words everywhere, whether it be words oh, on word. in text or words on the screen or just words, words, words. 
And rare is the person who just simply absorbs. Right. And digests, which is what you're saying. Yeah. Jesus is silent, but right. he digests. He takes it all. He absorbs all of our words, all of our accusations, all of our anger, all of our sadness, all of our brokenness. He absorbs, he absorbs, he absorbs. In a certain sense, he reverences it. Yes. He actually allows the this, this space for all of it to take place. Yeah. Why? So that I can speak a word that will rouse them. Mm-hmm. So it's like we look back at this beginning and he's like, and he suffers, even the Pharisees. Imagine you're in your kingly procession, yeah. knowing that you're about have to, to, to be enthroned upon the cross. Absolutely. And, and, and they're still they're just starting to abuse him. And, and, and it's this moment when people are celebrating and they're like, hey, shut him up. And he's like, man, I'm not going to do that because if they do... Everything's going to go crazy. Even the stone. Well, uh, so I don't know if this is too big of a stretch. He says, if they, what does he say? Hold on, let me get my Pilates moments. Uh, I sure did there. Rebuke your disciples. He said, if I tell you, if they keep silent, the stones will cry out. Now check this out. I might be stretching it. Okay. So take that. Okay. Um, At one point, they are silent. Remember when he finally is crucified, they all take off. Right. They are silenced. Right. They're quiet. They're hiding. And what happens? When he is crucified, the stones cry out. The earth shakes. There is an earthquake because even the stones must cry out because nobody else has the courage to. Whoa. This is fulfilled, actually, this little prophecy of Jesus in a way that is, is pretty literal. That once the disciples all do stop speaking and get fearful and hide, mm. even the earth itself and the stones shake. Wow. Well, Which is just interesting to me. And we lived that out in Tenebrae. Tenebrae? Tenebrae. <laughs> yeah, Tenebrae, at the end of the liturgy, um, we we hit the pews to, to represent the earthquakes. Oh, you're right. I kind of forgot about that. Yeah, so so you, so you to, to, to actually allow, in a certain sense, to give even voice. The pews to will this, cry out. And the, even the pews <laughs> will cry out if these my people don't. So then we go to the responsorial Psalm, Psalm 22. Which, which is, is what? I'm sorry. Which is really like we, we we hear Jesus quote that while he's on the cross. Yeah. My God, my God, why have you forsaken Just me? Just the first line, though. Just the first line. Which is a rabbinic technique. Rabbis would often say the first line of something to in order to evoke the rest. Right. right. Four score and 20 years ago Seven today. Years. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like we are we, the world, man. We are the children. We are the ones that make a bread. Yeah, see, I mean, this is what yeah, you're yeah. doing. Yeah, yeah, you're but, this, like... but, but this is a common technique. We do it all the time. We do it with movie quotes and music and stuff. But this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is not we saying- We started the podcast today. We did like, oh, did you jump ship? Oh, yeah. We kept it. And we kept doing it, too. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Jesus is not crying out because he thinks he has been abandoned by the Father. You know what I mean? He's not confused by this. Why have you abandoned me? It's not that. It's not a, a, it's not a statement of desolation on Jesus' part. He has chosen to empty himself in its entirety, but he's telling a I story. F- I think I want to... F- uh, yes. This is a, I, could, I think it's a both end, and I actually what? can't... Because like what, what's happened is I, like Jesus enters into the most profound suffering of every human Absolutely. person. And so, so it's not he himself, but he has received that he deep... He has absorbed it. Uh, no. Absorbed the deep totally. sense of abandonment of all of humanity and cries out from that. Yeah, so I don't mean to imply he's just giving it lip service. You know what I mean? He's not saying, why have you abandoned me? Oh, I've not really abandoned Yeah, no, he's not giving it lip service. Like, right. there really is. He is not abandoned by God, but he has taken on the experience of, of divine abandonment. Yes. He can't be abandoned by God because he is God. God, the God, the Trinity cannot be severed. 
but he's taken on the full experience of the abandonment. Yes. So yeah, it is kind of a both and. But he's also evoking the rest of the psalm, which goes on to say, even though I've suffered all of these things and this abandonment and been scourged and the evildoers have pierced my hands and feet, they can count all my bones, they divide my garments. I mean, it's telling the story of the passion. Right. But it ends with this just one, this righteous one being vindicated mm-hmm. and being glorified. And God wins and is victorious in the end. So, you know, just as we say a line from a movie to evoke the whole thing. We know the ending. Blue pill. Jesus knows Do, are you, the ending. Are you going to take the blue pill or the red pill? The blue one, red one. I don't, I don't remember <laughs> which one was which. Yeah, exactly. I don't know which you, one to take. You don't know how far the rabbit hole goes. Yeah. This is the thing. is it's, it, we, we say that because we want to evoke the whole expression right. of, are we going to choose to live in something real or are right. we going to choose to live in something fake? Yeah. He says, you know what? Are you going to choose to actually remain in an abandonment or are you going to mm. choose to actually follow and to say, like, I will give praise to God? Yeah. Yeah. Which is what the second reading then is doing. The second reading then unpacks that in a a very real way. Right. And again, I just want to Jesus isn't giving just lips. He's not just saying, hey, everything's going to be fine, guys. No, I mean, he really is fully experienced. He's he is embodying the entirety of the psalm. In that he has taken on the experience of being unjustly accused and being abandoned. But he also knows the end. That's why the cross is real. The cross isn't, we're not, um, we're not, uh, what, what's the, there's a number of heresies that talked about how Jesus <laughs> yeah. just, he just looked like he was suffering because right. God can't really suffer. Right. Um, it's, uh, there's, there's one, uh, um, docetism. Yes. Doseo is the Greek word for to appear. So he, he appeared to suffer, of course, but he didn't really suffer because he's God. How could God suffer? Right. And the church wholesale rejects that. No, he didn't just appear to suffer. He's not just telling this fun story. Right. It's not a fun story. But he actually fully experienced it. And that's, again, that's what the second reading is saying. Though he was in the form of God, he was God. He is God. It's not a was. Jesus is God, but he didn't regard his equality with God as something to be grasped, which is kind of a lame translation, exploited, exploited is the better one. Yep. To beat people over the head with. Because as the the Pharisees are even saying, hey, quiet your disciples. Tell them to shut up. They're being totally inappropriate. To which he could have been like, you guys have no idea. Do you know who I am? Do you realize who is in front of you? Which mm. he, I would have said, if I was him, thanks be to God, I'm not God. Because I would have said something stupid like that, right? <laughs> which would be to exploit the identity. Right. Don't you realize who I am? I created you. I am your savior and Messiah. How dare you? Mm. No, Jesus's response, like the first reading says, is silence. He did not regard that as something to be exploited, to beat people over the head with. Rather, he empties himself. He silenced himself, mm. which is a small part of the emptying process. He empties himself so he can absorb all of us. Right. That's not quite mathematically correct, but you know what I'm saying. Takes the form of a slave in human likeness, human in appearance, humbled himself even to the point of death. I, this is the thing that I would I would actually say is that is that he he didn't seize the the truth of his being so that we could know of his accompaniment. In in a, in mm. a, a he mm. didn't appear in such sophistication. Mm. He didn't like because God is is supremely vested with all glory. But mm. he said, "I want you to know that I am with you." And in a certain sense, it's 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 this like. Full expression of love, yeah. Like, and I, we could do a whole podcast literally just on this canonic hymn because it's it's literally one of the most beautiful things that exists in scriptures. Literally, and yes, not figurative. Absolutely. No, not figurative. <laughs> no, it's true. But um, yeah, if, 
ultimately it's it's for this confession of God, right. and and that's actually where in in the like as we go through the the passion, yeah. we I mean it's just such a brutalization of a person. That's actually why it's it's so hard to go through. Yes, it's because it's such a brutalization of of a human being. Yeah. And it's just such a brutalization of God. Mm-hmm. And it's both and. It's it's like, it's the same reason why we don't like um, watching somebody whom we love suffer. Right. It's, but, but we go through it. And, and the reason why we do it is for the, like, there's something super, so profound about actually being with somebody in their sufferings. Yeah. Even though it's the, the one thing in our whole life that we want to have avoid. to avoid. Yes. Because we don't want our people to suffer. We don't want no, the ones right. we love to suffer, but yet we go through it with them because we love them and we are so willing to do it. But you're right. That's a great way to think about what we'll be doing this Sunday with the passion. Um, I have, we're, I, we're accompanying, we're standing, we're there. I have this vision of like that, <laughs> that when Jesus is going through his passion, that any amount of time, because he is God. So oftentimes I look and I see him in his humanity, but because he is God, he's available to all places and spaces at, uh, at all times. He has a beatific vision. So, so like li- literally there's nothing that is, escapes him in all of eternity in a singular moment. Mm. So he can behold all of eternity in his divine nature. So I, I believe that in a certain sense, one of the, the, the love that we give in being attentive to Jesus in the Passion, in the reading of the Passion and doing the Stations of the Cross, uh, the love that we give to him is actually available to him in his At Passion itself. Yeah, so that we're actually attending to it in its eternal, in its eternal capacity wow. as he is attending to it in its imminent capacity both in our lives and how we suffer through the passion and how we suffer through our own lives and how he's mm-hmm. attentive to our passion. But that's why we mm-hmm. give our full attention to the passion and why we say these things, uh, why we actually utter those things so that we can actually make it, so we can experience somehow the presence that he experiences yeah. of us loving him in that moment. That's yeah. very, it's kind of convoluted, but I, I hope you're grasping that. No, it's good. It's good. Um, I just have two very quick things to add. Hit me. And then I'm done. Okay. The only things I want to say about the passion narrative, which is very long, and you got to go, um, is this. The Roman centurion, who I'm, it's, he's at the very end of this, and I'm fascinated by the Roman centurion, who's mentioned in every one of the Gospels except John, I believe. Is it Longinus? Yeah, that's, that's, is, is he ever actually named, or is that tradition? It might just be tradition. It but... might be, he might be named in one of them. I can't remember. But, um, he two okay two things I want to say about him and then we'll be done. Okay, he's standing there at the foot of the cross. He is the first person to make the kind of pro- the proclamation that he makes, and it, it's he makes different. There's different words in the different gospels that capture what he's saying, um, but here it says he witnessed and he witnessed what had happened. He glorified God and said, "This one man was innocent beyond doubt." Mark says, "Surely this man was surely this was the Son of God." Claims the first claim to his divinity that any human being actually speaks. Jesus says he was the Christ, but that's a political term, right? I mean, this guy makes a statement that is absolutely unprecedented. And I was thinking about that this week, actually. And I was thinking about, I was, I was doing a study with the, the focus crew on the Gospel of Mark. And in the Gospel of Mark, it says Jesus um, uh, made a loud sound or a loud cry and then breathed his last. And I was thinking about that. So it's after he says Psalm 22. There's a sound that comes out of him. And hang with me on this for just a second. His 
you know, when you're crucified, you asphyxiate, sorry, which means his lungs are collapsing. So the moment of his death, it's because his lungs have collapsed and there's a sound that escapes his body, which is not, it's not like a cry in pain. It's like the sound of the air, you know, being pushed out of his lungs for the last time as his body collapses upon itself, which would have probably been a terribly disturbing and kind of horrific sound. And I'm picturing this guy, and the centurion would have probably heard it a million times before because he watches crucifixions. That's what he does for his job. Right. But I was thinking about him in that. I don't, I don't know anything about this guy. But you have this moment where the sound escapes from his body. The last breath, the grunt, the, whatever sound the body actually makes at that moment. And then you get this guy's response. And I, I've always sort of pictured it as this guy is kind of standing there. He's like, surely this was the son of God. And, you know, he makes this proclamation, which is probably not at all what happened. Not dramatic. And I way. wonder if it's this moment of like the sound leaves his body. We, Well, th- there's this moment of like, oh, like he, he catches this. This is my speculation. He hears the sound and there's this moment of like, oh, no, like the what have we done moment. And something that that sound evokes in him that's like, oh, what just happened? And he's like, oh, no. That, that it's not this proclamation of positivity, but it's this, this regret. Like, what did I just do? What did I just participate in? That guy was the son of God. And I also imagine that as he says it, he probably says it under his breath. He's not making, he's not like standing on a platform making a speech. He's just standing there, doing his job, standing guard, and maybe saying it under his breath. And I imagine somebody heard it. Maybe it was Mary. Maybe it was Mary Magdalene. And she's like, wait, what did that guy just say? And like, imagine like you, you overhear somebody saying something under their breath. And you're like, wait, did I just hear what that guy, did he just say that? Right. And then somehow she takes it back to the apostles. And then eventually the gospel writers actually put it in there. Like, Mary Magdalene overheard the centurion under his breath at that last moment say this amazing statement of faith. Can you believe that? But, but we get an insight into this very private moment of this individual who has experienced the revelation of God with the sound that escapes his lungs. The word that the will very truly word that, that comes out him. of the silence, which is just a profound scene to me. And the other reason I think that's profound, again, this is the last thing I have to say. This is a Roman centurion. I don't know his experience. I don't know what he knows. He probably crucifies people every day. He deals with people who are seditious and rebellious. They're and... enemies of the state. That's who this guy is. Right. That's who gets crucified. And what is it? I mean, maybe there's just this pure movement of grace. Right. There's total a grace that he sees the divine in Jesus and recognizes it. Maybe. But then I saw something. I was, I was revisiting my, one of my favorite books, Introduction to Christianity by Ratzinger, yeah. who quotes Plato in The Republic and something I've forgotten about 400 years before Jesus. Plato, who is speculating about what the perfectly righteous and just man is, he says this. Plato, 400 years before Jesus, says in the Republic, um, he talks about what what is it like to be a just man in the world. He comes to the conclusion that a man's righteousness is only complete and guaranteed when he takes on the appearance of unrighteousness upon himself. For then it is clear that he does not follow the opinion of men, but only pursues justice for its own sake. So according to Plato, the truly just man must be misunderstood, must be persecuted in the world. And Plato goes so far as to say, they will say that our just man must be scourged, racked, fettered, have his eyes burnt out. And at last, after all manner of suffering, he will be crucified. 
Plato, with no sense of revelation, 400 years before Jesus, says if a man is truly righteous, truly just, he must take on the appearance, not exploit his righteousness, but rather take on all the suffering, take on all of this pain, be scourged, be racked, and be crucified. And what if, what if this centurion, who was formed in the Greco-Roman worldview, Mm. Maybe you read Plato at some point. Maybe it was taught to him at some point. Maybe he said, holy cow. Wow. This is the perfect embodiment of justice and righteousness. I get it because I've been taught and I have the eyes to see what truth is. Wow. Anyway, I was struck by that this week as I was reflecting on these things. Dude, that is like powerful, which is the seed of the word. um, Yeah. That, um that has been planted in all cultures and all times, preparing the way exactly. for, for Jesus Christ and understanding of who God exactly. truly really is. Exactly right. And so now all of a sudden he says, this is truly the righteous one. And yeah. who, who who has forsaken all appearance. I mean, talk about a powerful, a pow, a pl- the, the platonic. Yeah. Uh, uh, like, cause I mean, Plato's looking at the ideal. He's trying to understand what is the, the, the ideal. And here he is. And now the word that was uttered is a word so deep Yes, but that it's also the breath. See, this is actually the wild. Yeah. The wild thing is that is that the last breath and the word and the crying out is simultaneously the breath that goes over and heals the chaotic waters. Yeah, that actually gives order to everything. That the and, and the, mm-hmm. all the preparation and all the humiliation and attendance and love and the misunderstanding and the diagnosis of the world through a full reception of it in this in the silence and then the word that then was spoken yeah. this is really really this is really powerful and, and mm. worthy of our attendance yes um and a worthy of 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 looking again because this has been prophesied from the foundations of the world mm. that that it, that it would that Christ would come and set us free and it is him so, <sighs> so you guys we love you we pray holy week with you and we will um bless you and love you with our hearts thank you for your support and see you next time yeah we will pray with you happy holy week or blessed, blessed holy week blessed holy week that's, that's why i bless yeah. you in the name of the, the holy week of the lord <laughs> well said <laughs> okay goodbye everybody Bye. the word on the hill is a production of the aquinas institute for catholic thought here in beautiful boulder colorado you can find us online at www.thomascenter.org a-i-c-t you can find the Lanky Guys at lankyguys.org, and you can send us an email at lankyguys at thomascenter.org. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.